Open your Bibles to Matthew 26. If you would join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the instruction you have given us in your word. Thank you for the gospel of Matthew. Lord, I am, I have, through this gospel, grown immensely in my appreciation for this gospel. As we have taught through Matthew, Lord, a, a book that I thought I was familiar with, I had read a number of times, Lord, you have made it alive. And I pray this morning that you would make it alive in our midst again. Help us to see. Help our eyes not to be heavy as the disciples were, but rather bring them open. May we be alert. May we be awakened to the truth of this text. And may we be transformed by it through your grace, in your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're going to begin this morning by reading the text, the title of the message. Um, I, I, I battled through titles, but the title that we landed on, Overcoming the Standoff in Our Battle with Sin. Overcoming the standoff, the, the, the stalemate, the impasse, that place where, man, it's just constant war, but I never seem to win. Always wanting to do right, don't seem to be able to do right. <clears throat> How do we get beyond that? That's what we're going to be talking about today. If you would read with me, beginning in the 26th chapter of Matthew and verse number 30, if you would. I'm picking up right at the end, kind of a transitional statement of, of last week's text in verse 30. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak or the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away from Unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. 
So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to uh, the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd with armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the man stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for a sword, sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion so that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. There's a a great battle that we all face. There's a great struggle that we are all engaged in if we are disciples, if we are Christians. I think that struggle is defined for us. I I would even go as far as to say I think the, the proposition, the thesis of this section of Scripture, the primary point that we're to take home from this section of Scripture is stated rather clearly in verse 41. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Literally, it could be read, on the one hand, the spirit is willing, but the flesh, the body, the flesh is weak. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. On the one hand, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Have you ever felt like, you know, that kind of that mentality where you, you would say to yourself, I just keep facing the same sin, each week, giving into the same temptation week after week after week. Is there ever an end to this? Is there any escape? If so, how? How many might relate to that in some way? Okay, just make sure I'm not the only one here. At times, I think this text that we just read, verse 41, is used as a, a bit of a cop-out. You know, kind of that, well, you know, the Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. You know, I've got a willing spirit, but my flesh is weak. And as if that's the whole story. I think we should take another look at this verse and at this section because I don't think it's there to be given to us as a cop-out. I think it's there to be transforming in our lives, to, to break through that, that stalemate, that, that standoff, to, to end the standoff, to, to break through that impasse, to give us some way of escape. 
On the one hand, the spirit is willing. That word willing is, is really quite clear. It means eager, zealous, desires to do right. The spirit is willing. It is eager. The spirit, is, the spirit desires to do what is right. The spirit is zealous to do what is right. We, we all know what that's like. We oftentimes will leave care group or leave a Sunday morning meeting or leave our devotional time and our spirit is willing. We are ready to take the day. I'm going to do better. I'm going to not give in to that sin. I'm going to follow Christ. We sang songs this morning that would remind us of, you know, I will follow you. I'm, I'll lay it down. My whole life, my all, it is, I'm here to follow you. That's our spirit being willing. The disciples were willing. Lord, I'll never deny you. Lord, even if I have to die with you, I would not disown you. They were willing. They were zealous. And by the way, that's not a bad thing. It's not bad that they were willing and eager and desirous that they were zealous to say, I will never disown you. That wasn't where they fell down. Their spirit was willing. On the other hand, the flesh is weak. Now, we read that and we think to ourselves, no, it's, yeah, it's weak. I mean, you know, maybe about 80% there. If I work out a little bit, maybe we'll get it where it needs to be. You know, it's weak. And, and, and unfortunately, the way we use weak, I don't know that that's particularly helpful. The, the, the Greek word, literally, if you translated that word literally, it's no strength. The flesh has no strength. It's powerless. It's infirm. It's unable. It's feeble. It's sickly. Your flesh, your natural self, and I'll define flesh in a moment a little further, but your flesh is sickly. It's powerless. It's not half able. It's not 20% short. It's empty. Our text today is actually about overcoming this standoff, this impasse, finding that way of escape. Now, let me, let me def- define that impasse for you a little more clearly, that, that standoff. It's that I want to do right, I constantly do wrong. Every time I face temptation, I give in. My fleshly weakness overcomes my spiritual desire. Adolf Schlater said, the flesh is weak, its desire is bound to what is seen. The flesh abhors death, and shame is bitter to it. The moment the disciples saw that shame was about to approach, that their lives were at risk, their flesh began to scream. My flesh sees death and shame, discomfort, a lack of momentary pleasure, and denies Christ in some form, fashion, or another. Now, what is flesh? At at its root, it's my human ability independent of God's divine aid. It's my human ability independent of God's divine aid. The the, the scriptures refer to the arm of the flesh as that which really men dependent upon the arm of the flesh instead of trusting in and relying on the Lord. It's a theme that goes throughout scripture. It's pervasive. So the truth is I can't give you an exact, you know, here's in, in five words definition of flesh. Because it's, it's a broad topic. It, it, it's really a little bit like uh, one of those, uh, you know, let's say like Jello. It it's, it's moves around a little bit. It isn't inexact. And we think of flesh and we think body. We think, well, this is flesh, meat. Not exactly. But it's the human life. You, you, you could say that the flesh is your human life apart from divine aid. It certainly is corrupted by the sinful nature. Now, my, that's my flesh. My soul sees something else. My soul sees the glory of Christ. 
the love of God. My soul sees holiness, and it's drawn to it. My spirit is willing. It, it sees the glory of Christ and, and wants to pursue it. I don't want to pursue lust any longer or click on that link or take that second look. I don't want to lash out in anger at my wife or respond in self-defense. I don't want to be consumed with what others think of me. I don't want to usurp my husband's authority or seek joy and self-indulgence. But then in the moment, in the moment, we forget all that, don't we? We deny Jesus and his sufficiency. We deny the glorious joy that is found in him And we flee him, as the disciples did. It isn't supposed to be a standoff. It isn't supposed to be a stalemate or an impasse. It's it's not supposed to be that. This text is about how to be ready when temptation comes. How to be ready when our flesh is weak in the midst of temptation so that we don't fall and fail and flee Christ. I want to know how to be ready. I desire to know how to be ready. I don't want to keep falling into the same sin over and over again. So how? I mean, do you ever find yourself unprepared when temptation comes? Do you ever find yourself in the midst of a conflict that you didn't know was coming, and all of a sudden your anger is there, your impatience is riled up? I mean, you're, you're ready to go. And a moment ago you were reading your devotions, or you are having holy thoughts, or you are at complete peace, and all of a sudden, whoa, where did that come from? Are we ready at that moment? If not, how do we get to be ready? Or do we just self-confidently move forward assuming that we'll have what it takes when we get there? Peter and the other disciples that night learned this secret from the events of this night that we, and they're recorded here, that we might learn them also. So let's back up and consider what happened the night our Lord was betrayed. Your spirit is indeed willing. In verse 31, not just Peter, but all the disciples Uh, Jesus tells us, will fall away. They will fail in their faith. And why? Quite simply, on account of Jesus. On account of his suffering and humiliation. Often, we come to Christ. When we come to him, we come for a conquering king. We come for the Lord of heaven and earth. We come for the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered. And, well, we should. But as John the Apostle in the book of Revelation heard of the lion of the tribe of Judah that had conquered, it says, then he looked and saw a lamb looking as if he had been slain. And that happens to us. We come to the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered, but we look and see a lamb looking as if he has been slain. And we don't get that. I thought he was a lion that had conquered. I, I'm confused. What, what happened here? What, where did the lion go? I see a lamb, and he's rather bloody. He looks like he's been beaten. And we get offended, too. We walk away. We don't always fully understand when we catch a glimpse of this lamb. that he, That is how he indeed conquered. This night, Peter... And the rest of the disciples will have their vision of Jesus adjusted forever. They will see Jesus the Lord in his suffering and humiliation. Now, the disciples here represent all of us who set out to follow Christ. We will all fall away. We will fail at some point in our walk with Jesus, the suffering Savior. There may be a sense of disillusionment when we do. Kind of a, a, a expectations have failed. I thought I was going to be so much better the rest of my life. I didn't think I would ever fall like that again. 
How could I? <laughs> How could I? <laughs> As if somehow there were some inherent goodness in us that we should have been reliant upon. In verses 33 through 35, we read earlier, Peter adamantly insists that he could not possibly deny the Savior. No doubt his spirit is willing. They are oblivious to their potential failure. And, and the question we have to ask is, why were they oblivious to their potential failure? Certainly, they're eager to follow Christ. Certainly, they're eager to stand with him. That's not bad. But their spirit's willingness is mixed with fleshly self-confidence. And this self-confidence produced a complacency, a complacency that will lead to failure in the face of temptation. Now, this isn't just about Peter and the other disciples. It's about us. Every sin at one level or another is a denial of Christ. Denying Christ's way as being the best way, it's a denial of Christ. Denying his sufficiency as being sufficient, it's a denial of Christ. Denying that eternal joy in Christ is better than the fleeting joy that sin promises to deliver, it's a denial of Christ. Denying Christ in order to avoid perceived suffering or persecution, every sin for a Christian is because though the spirit is eager on the one hand, the flesh is powerless. And so, in some form, fashion, or another, we engage in Christ's denial. Before we can learn this secret to overcoming, we must first see clearly just how powerless we are, just how sickly, how feeble. Jesus is going to face temptation. So Jesus, in our text, goes to a place in verse 36 called Gethsemane. Goes to a place called Gethsemane. And there we find that the disciples' prayer life was wanting. Now, how appropriate that this olive garden should carry the name Gethsemane. Gethsemane means oil press. Kind of like we go to a restaurant called Olive Garden. It's not an Olive Garden, it's a restaurant. Well, this Olive Garden is not an oil press, but it was named Oil Press Garden. You know, kind of like we might have the, the, the Horseshoe Ranch. You know, it's not a horseshoe, it's, it's a ranch. So here we have the Oil Press Garden. Now, what's fascinating about that? Well, it's fascinating to me because of how oil presses work and how that is. In, in Galilee, they've uncovered uh, an oil factory where they would make olive oil. And in, there, there are three steps in the process of making olive oil. I, I find this fascinating because whenever I look at oil of any kind, particularly olive oil because we have a lot of it in our house, never too much olive oil. But, but when I look at oil, I always wonder to myself, you know, I, I get olives. I mean, I've seen olives. I understand that. Um, oil? How do, you get, how do you get this out of that? I, I, I don't get that. I, 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 you know, peanut oil. And I eat peanuts. But how do you get this out of that? And that's always been a, something that bewilders me. So th th in the middle of this olive factory, you have this huge millstone. You have a huge stone, a millstone on top, and you put the olives on there, and an animal will, would pull this millstone around, turn it, it would go around, and it would crush the olives into this mush, if you will. Then they will take that olive mush, in the second step, they put it into these, these coarse woven bags, these baskets, if you will, and, and they put it all in there and they bring it to the place and they begin to press it so that the liquid separates from the solid material, the material flesh, if you will, of that olive. 
So now you have a liquid portion and you have a flesh portion. They discard the flesh portion and they take that liquid portion and they put it in these huge vats in the third step and let it separate. Because as you know, there's a watery portion and an oily portion in that liquid portion. And oil rises to the top and they're separate. They don't mix too well. So they, they begin to separate and next thing you know, you've got oil. And that's how they make olive oil. Well, they're at the oil press garden. And I think that provides us with an excellent metaphor, if you will, a good picture of why we need to spend time in prayer. Listen, we aren't battling God in prayer. If you ever thought we were there to battle God, kind of wrestle with God, we're not there to battle with God. We are battling the inability of our flesh. We are battling our flesh's tendency to deny Christ when the heat is on. That's what we're battling. Watch and pray. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus goes to this oil-pressed garden to battle the flesh as well and invites the disciples to do the same. Now, though Christ is not tainted with sin, his flesh is weak. And we see that in his prayer, and he has to rely on the Father. If there is any way possible, may this cup pass from me. You don't think his flesh is weak? You're facing uh, uh, the crucifixion and, and all the sufferings that are entailed with that. Trust me, your flesh would be quaking too. It's weak. And he has to rely on the Father. He was fully human. His wasn't sinful, but it was weak. And he had to endure it without sin. And so he goes to this place of prayer, and he labors long in prayer. He goes through three phases, if you will, of his prayer time. Here in prayer, the spirit's strength overcomes the flesh's weakness. There's a fleshly discarding that goes on, a putting to death, a trusting in God. Now, we can assume that Christ was successful in overcoming the flesh here in prayer because in what follows, in the cross, he passes the test perfectly. What about the disciples? Well, though the disciples thought they were ready, ironically, Jesus didn't think he was ready. The disciples thought they were ready for whatever they were going to face. How about you? Do you always think you're ready? Or do you, do you sense a desperate need to be before the Lord in prayer? You know, you know why I don't pray when I don't pray? It's real simple. I don't think I need to. Oh, I, I know I've got my excuses and my reasons. You know, not enough time, really busy with this, you know. But the fact of the matter is, when it comes down to it, if I'm not praying, it really boils down to I don't think I need to. Because... I find time for what's a priority, don't I? Don't you find time for what's a priority? And isn't it ironic that the Savior thought he needed to, but the disciples didn't think they needed to? If the battle is lost here in prayer, the enemy has won the first skirmish. In fact, be known, I think he's won the whole battle if we lose the battle in prayer. They failed to pray. And the text tells us why they failed to pray. They were sleepy. They were sleeping because their eyes were heavy. Listen, my eyes get heavy. My eyes are heavy, though I have faith. I move back toward blindness all the time, toward spiritual blindness, toward blindness toward spiritual realities, to the real enemy of my soul, to what's at stake. We sleep, we get distracted, 
so we don't pray. We have to wake up and be alert so that we can see clearly and pray. That's what Peter tells us in his epistle. How do you prepare for temptation? Or do you even have a category for that? Prepare for temptation? I'm supposed to be ready when it comes? Remember, we just got through with Jesus' teaching and he ends on that note of be ready, be ready, be ready, be ready. He's telling us how to be ready when temptation comes. We need to be ready. Do you prepare for temptation? Do you anticipate that it's coming? Or do you even avoid temptation? Or do you just kind of think, oh, you know, temptation is no big deal. I can handle it. And just kind of walk aimlessly through life. Jesus had already told us that we are to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I think that's important to keep in mind. If we're to pray that way, we are to live that way, not just aimlessly going through life, but avoiding temptation. We, we will never overcome this impasse, this stalemate, this standoff with sin. We'll never overcome it without spending time with Jesus in prayer. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. I don't know that He could have made it any plainer than that. That's from John 15. But it's essentially the same truth we're learning here. Apart from Me, you can do nothing, He tells the disciples. Jesus didn't think He was ready. He was sorrowful and troubled. He went away for about an hour the first time, but didn't think He was finished after that hour. Jesus went a second time, and He was still not finished. Then He went a third time. See, Jesus went to the oil press of prayer. He was, he was sorting out flesh from spirit. He was getting His weak flesh aside, and He was engaging God's divine aid so that He might overcome when temptation was at the door. And He knew it was coming. We can learn a lot about prayer from Jesus right here. He did not fail in prayer. How are we to pray when we face the most difficult situations in life? Certainly, Jesus was facing His most difficult situation. He needed His most help. How are we to pray when we need the most help from God? Now, the fact is, we don't always know when those difficult situations are going to arrive. In fact, most of the time we don't. We don't get forewarning. But we've been forewarned to be ready. It will come. The disciples, oh, never deny you, Jesus, you're great. You heal the sick. You feed the poor. Life is great. Of course I'm not going to deny you. But the minute they saw swords and clubs, well, now, hold on. Crowd arrives armed with swords and clubs. I mean, it didn't take but that. I mean, I was, whoop, we're done. Oh, I don't know that I, in fact, I know. I do know. I would not have been any different. I would not have been any different. And guess what? Neither would have you. Now, how does the enemy arrive in your life with swords and clubs? In what way does he press you toward denying Christ? His sufficiency. His joy. His perfection. How does he come bidding you to deny He came to Adam and Eve as a serpent saying, Did God really say, Oh no, you, you won't die? It's just a little more subtle. It didn't look like swords and clubs, but it had the effect of death on all mankind. How does He come in your life?
every failure in temptation, every failure to overcome temptation, I think, can be linked back to a lack of preparation in prayer. I know in my life, recently I was just examining some areas where I had blown it in a relationship. And I just, in my examination, it dawned on me rather clearly. Rather clearly. It was like the broad light of day. I did not spend any significant time. Oh, yeah, I prayed. Lord, help me in this situation. You know, I, I spent that, that, you know, few minutes in prayer. Why? Because, well, I was rather confident that I was able to handle it. I did not take belabored time in prayer. I didn't go to the oil press of prayer. Separating out, getting, discarding my fleshly input and desires. And it had an effect. I needed to repent. We need to spend time in prayer. Oh, but that's just one more thing I need to do. No, no, no. You're missing the whole point. (laughs) Prayer is not a deed you do. Prayer is a complete admittance that you do nothing of your own that is of any good. Prayer is a complete reliance upon Him. Prayer is not something you bring to the table. Prayer is you going to the table saying, I have nothing. Prayer is a lot closer to the homeless guy on the side of the street holding up a sign saying, feed me, than it is like you going to work and earning your keep. It's not like that at all. It's like the other. Prayer is our desperate dependence on God. In spiritual realities, I think that's the better picture. Jesus prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Now listen, this is a faith-filled prayer. I've had people suggest that, oh, you wouldn't want to pray like that. Yeah, God forbid you pray like Jesus, huh? (laughs) Well, yeah, don't follow Jesus. I mean, there's got to be better ways to pray than following Jesus. No, that's a faith-filled prayer. That's a temptation-overcoming prayer. That is a soul-strengthening prayer. That is how Christ prayed when He faced the most difficult thing He would ever face. More difficult than you and I will ever face. I would say that's a good way to pray. I mean, yet not as I will, but as you will. I mean, isn't prayer all about me getting my way? (laughs) No. Actually, prayer is often about you not getting your way. About you learning to conform to God's ways. Especially in the areas of of fleshly desires, interrelational conflicts, temptations towards sin. Hey, if you get your way in every temptation, well, your way is going to be to follow sin because your flesh will be rising up and screaming. Not what I will, but what you will. 
this fits with that earlier instruction to pray that we spoke about, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jesus, in his second approach to the Father, says, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. In other words, lead me not into temptation is essentially his first prayer. His second prayer is, deliver me from the evil one. It looks like I'm heading into that temptation. It looks like there's not really going to be an alternate path for me. Deliver me from evil. May your will be done. May I be submitted to you throughout this process. We must ask the Spirit to expose and purge us of our fleshly responses, of our fleshly desires, of our fleshly weakness. And Jesus lacked no faith, by the way, in saying, Yet not as I will, but as you will. His, nearly, his three nearly identical prayers were not a lack of faith. He's pouring out his heart to the Father. Prayer is the place for pouring out our hearts to the Father. Listen, don't, don't let superstition guide your prayer life. There are many people that get all concerned because of bad teaching they've had. But, you know, I can't pray twice for this. If I pray twice, then that shows unbelief. Well, Jesus prayed three times. And they were lengthy, each one. So it's not as if he just went and prayed those three simple lines. I mean, there were lengths of prayer involved here. See, we, we kind of get this idea that somehow that, that the reason prayer gets answered is if we have the right formula of words. We do the right incantation, and then all of a sudden God's going to respond. That's not biblical prayer. That might be kind of close to sorcery, but it's not biblical prayer. That isn't a lack of faith. It's throwing yourself in dependence upon God, which is faith. Faith is not human confidence and boldness. Faith is trusting in the Father. Prayer won't be answered because of your great faith, by the way. It will be answered, though you may have mustard seed-sized faith, it will be answered because of God's great power. Our confidence in prayer is not in our prayers. Our confidence in prayer is in our Father, in our Lord Jesus Christ, and in His blood that has made the way for us to come, even though we have failed many times, that we will be accepted because of Him. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. Jesus has given all disciples an invitation to join Him in prayer right here. Watch Him pray with me. Watch and pray with me. We are invited there as well to join Him in prayer. Each time Jesus went away, He invited Peter and the brothers to join Him. And while they failed, it is because He didn't fail that we have hope. He passed this temptation and bore our failure. So now we can join Him in prayer, though we have failed. Our imperfect prayer is united with His perfect prayer. When I go to the Father in prayer, it isn't... My prayer that has to be right. It's my prayer coming through Him who had the perfect prayer. <laughs> wrapped up in His perfect prayer. Wrapped up in His perfect life. That is what is accepted before the Father. Now Peter and the other disciples we see in the book of Acts certainly learned this lesson and they were praying and it transformed their lives. They were a praying church. We are invited to join Him with troubled souls weighed down by the brokenness of this world to do the same. 
In Romans 8:22, we read the following. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, not only does creation groan because of this brokenness, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. A few verses earlier, the first fruits of the Spirit was identified as the Spirit of Sonship by which we cry, Abba, Father. Interestingly, that phrase, Abba, Father, comes right out of this Garden of Gethsemane prayer in Mark's account. We're crying out to God in that desire to overcome the, the walk of the flesh, the temptations that we face, and to walk by the, the willing desire of the Spirit. We're groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The Spirit helps us, it tells us in verse 26, in our weakness, in our inability. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. I don't know exactly what Jesus said for those entire long sessions of prayer we get the essence of his prayer here we get certainly the words that he communicate but we know that he sweat drops of blood according to some of the accounts that he was sorrowful and troubled in his spirit we read here in matthew he was groaning if you will he was yearning we need, to, we need to wait before the Lord and we need to cry out to God. We need not to be afraid to be in our sorrow and trouble to groan inwardly, to allow the Spirit to speak in ways that words cannot express. Some refer to this as a prayer language. I don't know what you want to call it, but it's very real. And every one of us have the Spirit of Sonship in us crying out, Abba, Father. Ephesians 6, we find out that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers. Therefore, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. We are to be praying in the Spirit. But listen, your flesh is weak. Your flesh is weak. Complacency ended the moment the large crowd came with swords and clubs, but it was too late at that point. They had not prayed. Jesus was ready. He looks him in the face and says, do what you came for. He's not crying out about injustice. He knows the Father is in charge. Now, Jesus reminds the disciples, because the disciples, the first thing they do is respond in the flesh. They get Peter gets a sword out, whacks the guy's ear, off it comes. Jesus has to deal with that. But Jesus reminds them, listen, prayer is so powerful that if I ask, I could have 12,000 angels at my disposal to deliver me. Now, the picture that's given there is, remember the Old Testament accounts where Israel's going against the vast army, and you read about how they're worshiping God, and all of a sudden the angels of the host of heaven come, and without them lifting their swords, the, the, the enemy army is slayed. That's the picture. Jesus is saying this, this really isn't a difficulty. If I wanted, I could call down 12,000 legions of angels. And, of course, you and I are thinking to ourselves, then why don't you, buddy? <laughs> Look what's ahead. But he was submitted to the will of the Father. But as soon as Jesus submits the rest to the arrest, the disciples flee in fear. The flesh abhors death and shame. It can only desire what it sees. And apart from seeing by faith and prayer, there isn't any other choice. Our eyes become less heavy when we engage God in prayer. 
Of course, then we have Peter's denial. We read about it at the end of the chapter, quite emphatically in verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then when he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people uh, there, this fellow is with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Listen. After Peter's emphatic insistence that he would not deny Christ, even to death, coupled with his triple failure to pray, three times he didn't see the need to pray, we now have three times he denies Christ. I don't think it's any accident that we have three times he fails to pray, three times he denies Christ. It's a message. Temptation without the divine grace of prayer reveals our complete inability and powerlessness against the enemy of our souls. Temptation without the divine grace of prayer <clears throat> reveals our complete inability, our powerlessness against the enemy of our souls. Adolf Schlater said, when the disciples do not place themselves under the protection of divine grace through prayer, they are exposed to temptation. They are brought into situations that confront them with well-aimed blows. Listen, you have an enemy of your souls, and he will deliver some well-aimed blows. We need to be ready. We need to be ready. John Stott said, we may be very weak. I sometimes wish we were weaker. We may be very weak. I sometimes wish we were weaker. Listen, you may come in here this morning and understand, well, yeah, I get it, I'm weak. I sometimes wish we understood we are weaker. Because if we really get our weakness, our complete inability, our sickly soul, our sickly flesh, which we make our way through life with self-confident, sadly, if we really got how sick we were, how weak we were, how without strength we were, there would be no lack of prayer. I really wish we were weaker. Well, the truth is we are. It's just that we don't get it. Well, I do not want to leave this morning without this. We know from the account, I didn't take the time to read it, but of Christ being brought before his accusers and being accused and the injustice that's there, he did not waver. And listen, because of that, we have hope. This is why I can spend time with Jesus, though I've failed in temptation repeatedly, as he did not fail. And it is his righteousness that stands in my place. I can go before the Father. 
And it is because of his promise. Remember when he told the disciples they would all fail him? And they said, what? But I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. It's interesting to me that Judas wasn't present at that promise. He's the only one who didn't get that promise. They all failed him. And the eleven, he had received a promise. And sure enough, he met them in Galilee. We have a promise. We have a promise from the Savior that he will meet us though we fail. And he will engage us because he did not fail. And he will deliver us. And that is glorious. Only Jesus had the perfect prayer life. Only Jesus overcame sin perfectly. What, what I'm saying this morning, I'm not calling us to perfection. And I'm not calling you to perfection. I'm calling us to join a perfect Savior in prayer. Allowing Him to break the, the, the standoff for us in our battle with sin. Allowing Him to give us that way of escape as we join Him in prayer. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus... Oh, how I wish. Oh, how I yearn. Oh, how I desire that this would not be just another message. But that for many of us, it would be transforming. I don't assume that all of us are in this place, but I do think that many of us are in this place where we do not sufficiently understand our inability to walk through life apart from time with the Savior. We have thousands of years of history to show us that a perfectly good law will not make us righteous. Because why? Because our flesh is unable to obey. Transform us by your power in your presence, Lord. May this invitation that we see in this text to join you in prayer be spoken to our souls, each one of us today. And may we be drawn and may we respond, understanding our weakness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand.